Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. This is episode 476 for March 15th, 2019. On today's show, guitarist Mike Baguetta. Please support the show by becoming a member for just $5 a month at thejazzsession.com slash join. And stay tuned later in the show for a major announcement. Ooh. Mike Baguetta's got a new album out. It's a trio record called Wall of Flowers. Here's what it sounds like. Back to the show, uh, guitarist Mike Baguetta, uh, who's got just a brilliant new album that if you're listening to this in anything approaching real time, uh, where today would be somewhere around March 15th, 2019, uh, the new album Wall of Flowers drops today. Uh, It is a trio record with uh, Mike on guitar, Mike Watt on bass, and Jim uh, Keltner on drums, and uh, we'll talk about those guys coming up. But first, I want to welcome back Mike Baguetta to the show. It's great to have you here, man. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me again. It's been... uh... A long time. I forget when we did the last one. Uh, I think we decided it was 1974. <laughs> yeah, it was like 30 or 40 years ago. Yeah, yeah, that was awesome. It was after your third tour with the Stones, <laughs> I think. Um, <laughs> yeah, so it's it's great to have you here. Um, uh, speaking of uh, the 70s and rock, I guess I didn't mean to make that segue, but um, <laughs> while while we're mentioning who's in this trio, uh, this show normally doesn't have me reading a list, but I just wanted to read, just for context's sake, <laughs> this is just a super partial Jim Keltner discography. Uh, these are just the artists. I'm not going to read the albums because we'll be here all week, but I'm just going to quickly, here we go. Uh, Carly Simon, Randy Newman, the Bee Gees, Bob Dylan, John Lennon, Steely Dan, J.J. Kale, Roy Orbison, Richard Thompson, Pink Floyd, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, Neil Young by himself, Simon & Garfunkel, The Pretenders, B.B. King, Lucinda Williams, Eric Clapton, Elton John, She and Him, and John Mayer. And that's literally like, I just picked a couple from each decade. And then the yeah. other guy in the trio uh, has played with fewer acts, but for longer with each one, uh, because he co-founded the Minutemen, Firehose, currently plays in an awesome band that I actually played a lot on the indie rock station that I worked in, uh, Big Walnuts Yonder. Uh, he was in the Stooges for quite a while, and that's Mike Watt. Um, 
so these it's certainly no mystery why you would want these guys as players in any ensemble but i'm curious about how the three of you hooked up and why you thought that these two guys were the right fit for what you were working on yeah um it's pretty it's pretty it's pretty crazy <laughs> to kind of think that this actually um happened for a number of reasons um but um we're, yeah we can't really have that conversation without talking about one more person and that and his name is chris schlarb okay um and, and chris schlarb is um, a really dear friend of mine who runs a recording studio and now a record label out of long beach california um and chris and i became friends through another longtime friend of mine named chris tyner who's a great trumpet player in uh, bakersfield california he and i have had a long standing duo called tin bag for 10 or 12 years at this point. Um, so I had met Schlarb through, through Tyner and, uh, we just kind of hit it off and, you know, hung out and had some great conversations over a couple of years. And then he sort of at one point said he was going to start a record label. You know, he's got a, he's a, he now had a space for a, a studio, a full-time studio. And he was producing so much music that he wanted to have a way to put some of it out. And he just sort of asked if I'd be interested in doing something. And I, I said, of course, because I'd always loved his production skills and his ears. And, and I just thought it would be a fun thing to do. And I also thought it might be a good opportunity to do something a little bit um, different than the things I had been doing um, with the albums I'd put out on, on Festone. Um, and I, I guess musically, I sort of have been kind of veering more towards... Um, I don't know, some people might say kind of a rock aesthetic, uh, which is a complicated, <laughs> yes, maybe complicated thing to say because, you know, music is good music is good music. And, uh, I don't really like to define things in that way anyways, but I did have some ideas for things that I thought maybe, maybe wouldn't be, um, totally suited on, on fresh sounds. It's kind of for the dynamics and the sort of sounds I wanted to have happen. Blah, blah, blah. Anyway. So, Schwab and I are talking and I just sort of was thinking like, okay, if I'm going to do something, maybe I should do something like really different. And it also kind of coincides with a, another conversation with a kind of a, a friend and, and mentor of mine named David Torn, uh, the great legendary guitarist and composer and sound Smith. And I will, um, I will just shamelessly say, and also former guest on the jazz session in the very, very early days. So folks can check that out in the archive. Oh Yeah. I'm going to download that when we're done. Um, and he, he was mastering my last album, uh, Spectre, with Jerome Harris and Billy Mintz. And we were just sort of talking. I think I was asking him about his, uh, his first album, Cloud About Mercury, which is like a touchstone album for me. And I'm sure many, many more people. And it, it's just such, a, such an amazing um, band on there, you know, Bill Bruford, Tony Levin, um, Aishan. And I was just sort of asking how he got that band together. You know, Bruford lived in England. Torn was in New York, I think at the time. And he, he told an interesting story, um, which I won't get into. I'll probably screw up some of the details, but basically about this kind of cold calling Bruford, like writing him a letter, asking him if he would play this music with him. And, and maybe he had done the same for Mick Karn, the, the bassist. Um, who didn't end up doing that that particular record, but 
it was just sort of an interesting idea to me because I'd never done that. I'd sort of gotten to know the people I've always played with and written music for in my bands and, and the thought of just sort of cold calling somebody just because I thought it might be an interesting idea had occurred to me, but I just didn't really think it was for me in a way. Um, but I started thinking about it more after that. So I was just sort of thinking about all this stuff in conjunction at the same time from everybody. And I started thinking like, well, who are my, who's my favorite bassist and who's my favorite drummer in terms of like, who has the craziest, weirdest kind of snakiest grooves, um, that maybe could add that element to my music that I kind of been wanting to sort of take, take more of a stab at over the years in a way. So in my mind, I was just like, well, it's obvious. It's Jim Keltner and it's Mike Watt. And that's kind of a crazy combination. If you think about just sort of in terms historically genre wise or whatever, but, but in my mind, there was no doubt that it was, it was going to feel amazing and, and work. And so this kind of started like a two year process of, (laughs) of kind of trying to make this thing happen. Um, So when I originally told Chris Schlarb about this idea to do it with, to do a trio with Jim Keltner and Mike Watt. I remember I was sort of half joking, thinking like, there's no way this will ever happen, but wouldn't that be such a cool idea? You know? And we were both kind of half joking about it for a while. And then I think after like another year of sort of this coming up once in a while, we were both like, wait a minute, can we actually, can we actually do this? And we started sort of taking it a little more seriously and, and kind of trying to put a schedule together and, and this and that. And here we are. about your first contacts with those guys i mean how how did you reach out to them and uh, you know, I, I don't know if they knew who them. you were or what i mean how did that happen i met them in the studio and chris pretty much um handled the whole thing he he knew uh he knows mike pretty well he's done a bunch of sessions with him out in out in southern california and i think chris um yeah chris also got in touch with jim uh, he, you know, knew people who had worked with him over the years out there. And uh, so he got in touch with them and he set the whole thing up and we figured out a date. I think maybe I had a little 
I had some contact with both of them beforehand, uh, maybe over email, maybe a, a phone call, I forget, just to kind of send some music and, and just rap a little bit about, you know, just kind of what I was thinking musically or send them some of my stuff I'd already done so they could get a feel for it. Um, but I didn't actually meet either of them until I was, until it was time to, to hit that day. And so talk about that, about walking into the studio or being there first and having those guys come in. What, what was that like, that first meeting? Yeah, yeah, I was there first. Um, I would assume, yeah, like uh, seven hours earlier. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah right, yeah. Well, I had done, um, well, as you hear on the record, it's, it's a bunch of pieces, trio pieces interspersed with a couple of shorter solo pieces. So I was there the day before at um, Big Ego Studios with, with Sharp recording the solo material. And then the next day, uh, we did all the trio material. Um, and it was, you know, it was, uh, it was really, it was really cool. Kind of, I was there, I was hanging, I was just sort of got my stuff set up and, you know, Watt showed up and we met and, and uh, we actually kind of hit it off. We started talking about Captain Beefheart um, and we had kind of an interesting long conversation about about him and his about Beefheart and his music, which Mike is also a big fan of, uh, as am I. As am and I. then uh, you know Jim came in and he kind of said hi, and you know everybody was just totally cool. Everybody was like super pro and and very warm and very open to trying um, a lot of the sort of crazy things that I wanted to try. You know there was. It was just really, in a lot of ways, it was an ideal session with with ideal bandmates that, that weren't holding back at all and uh, were open, and it was just a great, um, really great day of music making uh, in every way you could think. liner notes or the the kind of what press materials for the record um uh, mike watt talks about the fact that he was very nervous that he wasn't sure he could hold up <laughs> his end which to me is a hilarious but is also kind of kind of cool because like you know i mean mike watt is is 
he's a legit legend. I mean, this you know the the bands that yeah, he founded. Totally. I mean, no they question. are they are absolute cornerstones no of particular genres of music. And he himself is just, I mean, he's a giant. And so to think that a guy like that, I kind of love that a guy like that could still walk into a studio and think, mm, I'm not a hundred percent sure I'm the dude for this session, despite all of his accomplishments. It kind of I like that because it suggests a person who is. Uh, like still open to experience and also not sure they're at the top of the mountain, which seems to me like a good place to be if you're going to make creative music is to be unsure is to be pretty sure that you're not at the top of the mountain. Yeah, I mean, I mean, obviously, like his his um, questioning that in whatever way he did is totally unfounded. I mean, he's a monster in every way. But yeah, I mean, the fact that I think it's really indicative of somebody that really cares about music and cares about making good music. You just want to make good music, you know, it, and it, it kind of goes back to that, that thing maybe we were talking about a little earlier, like um, it's not about if it's going to be called this or it's going to be called that. You want to, you want to just deliver great music regardless of what the situation is. And I think that requires a little bit of, I mean, I can speak for myself. I'm always like really unsure about what's going to happen. <laughs> you know, like even stuff that I've like rehearsed really well. I think like, oh man, is this going to go well? What, how am I? What is going to sound? Is this? Is it going to work with everybody in the room? And I think that kind of attitude keeps your ears open, keeps your heart open, keeps your mind open. And I think that's where making great music comes from. Um, yeah, I think it's. I think it's a healthy attitude, you know, for a musician to kind of not think like, oh yeah, I got this, no problem, but to just really be more like, okay, I'm go I'm going to do my best and I'm going to take this seriously and it's really special, you know? And that was really, really, uh, that was, I think, maybe one of the first sort of things I had heard from Mike over email too, like just sort of, oh man, it's it's Keltner, what an honor to play bass with him. And, and I think I, at that moment I knew this was going to be something really special because everybody was everybody was taking it seriously. Nobody I think was kind of taking it as just sort of like, Oh yeah, just another session for today. I'll go in and do my thing and get out of there. It seemed like right off the bat, everybody was, was committed, you know? And you could, I mean, you know, I've obviously like any person who's ever turned a radio on, I've heard Jim Keltner play the drums <laughs> thousands of times at this point in my life. And both when I knew it was him and, you know, in later years figuring out, Oh, that was Jim Keltner all that time. Um, but on this record, I mean, there's a lot of places where it is just kind of net free. Let's see what is happening in this exact second right now playing that I don't, I don't associate with Jim Keltner. I mean, I'm sure he's in the present moment and he's doing, you know, he's all, he's all in whatever he's behind the drum set. It's just that in the, in the context in which I've heard him, I mean, those bands that I listed, you know, those are things with they're pretty prescribed ideas of what's about to happen. And, you know, your project is very, very different. And so as I was listening to him play on this record, I was, I don't, I don't know if it's right to say I was impressed. I was impressed. I'm not sure if that's a word I should be using with Jim Keltner, but I mean, I was impressed at the fact that he just seemed to be like, well, this is what this music needs right now. And, you know, I don't care if I have 8,000 recordings where I'm doing nothing like this at all. This is who I am in this session because this is what the music requires. And that seemed to me like a pretty special thing that happened on your record in this room with this music that you put together. Like, I just feel like that's pretty cool. Cause if this is not like most other Jim Keltner recordings. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know that it's like any other thing that he's done on record. Um, 
I think probably the stuff he did with Frizzell comes closest. Sure. Um, you know, the Gone Just Like a Train, uh, Good Dog, Happy Man record. Um, but but I don't know that there's as much really kind of straight up free improv um, type of playing that he does on this. And, and I don't know that I've really heard him do anything like this on record. Obviously, I haven't heard all of his records. Um, I don't know that many mere mortals. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's only so many um, years that we're all going to be alive. So, yeah. yeah. And of course, like, you know, I have my favorite stuff that he's on, just like with Watt. I mean, there's so, so many great recordings from both of these guys. Like, you know, all, this, all the George Harrison, John Lennon stuff with Keltner is amazing. All the Ry Cooter stuff is amazing. Um, you know, you can go on and on. He did a great... Uh, he did a, a great record with a, another great guitarist friend of mine named Dan Phelps. Um, uh, the name of that album is escaping me. Sorry, Dan. It's a great record, though. Um, and I knew from other people that had kind of worked with him over the years that he, you know, he would he would kind of improvise, you know, maybe play free between takes with some people or something. And I knew that he kind of came from a jazz background originally, too, so while I had never heard him specifically sort of improvise a piece with other people in this way that I think that I'd like to do and that I thought I would like to do for most of this record, just kind of hearing the sense of how he plays, I just sort of knew that it wasn't going to be an issue. You know, I mean, you listen to his grooves behind any of those things and it's sort of constantly evolving. He's never he's never really just playing one groove through a whole tune. There's always something kind of changing. There's always a little, you know, the, from bar to bar, something shifts. There's always this sort of snaky little thing that's evolving, you know, and the same thing with Watts bass lines, even if it's just kind of not necessarily the notes change, but the feel kind of keeps moving. There's like such a momentum to the way that both of these guys play, you know, and it, and it, it adds this thing that's a little off kilter. It's totally totally deeply grooving but evolving and there's a little kind of weirdness going on <laughs> and uh just you know some of it was kind of like yeah i think this will be cool so i didn't really know but i wasn't i never really thought like that it wasn't gonna work um because these these two guys had never met either this was the first time they'd met was in the studio the first time they they'd made music together and it was uh, yeah i mean for that reason alone i was really happy it was able to happen because it's just from a selfish perspective, like thinking, wow, wouldn't it be great to hear Jim and Mike play together? And that didn't exist. And now it exists. Like now I get to hear them play together. Yeah. That's <laughs> pretty a bunch wild. Of guitar nonsense going on too, but, but <laughs> to hear those guys play together is really, that's what I'm so happy about hearing. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty amazing. Um, I will just insert here that the name of the Dan Phelps album is called Ark um, from Arc. Uh, 2016. Yeah. That's the one. Let's take a quick break from the show to talk about membership. Here's the thing. For this show to become weekly, which is my goal, I need to get to 200 subscribers. 
I think we can make that happen by the end of 2019, so the show can go weekly at the beginning of 2020. Right now, we're 16% of the way there, thanks to our 32 current members, which is awesome. Special thanks to Carol Lee, who joined this week. To reach 200 by the end of the year, we need to add 10 members every two weeks. In other words, 10 members in between each episode of the show. Now, is that an ambitious goal? Absolutely it is. Is it completely doable? Absolutely it is. But only if you join. It is totally awesome that you listen, it's great that you comment, that you retweet, that you comment on Facebook and Instagram and all that stuff. That is really wonderful and it greatly helps the show. But in order for this show to become all that it can be, I need you to transform from becoming a listener to a member. Here's how it works. You go to thejazzsession.com slash join. You kick in five bucks a month. Now, you can kick in more if you want. Some people do pledge more, but there's only one pledge level that's asked for, and that's $5 a month. If you kick in $5 a month, you get a little tchotchke every year of some sort, and you get a bonus episode every month, including the two months in the summer where there are not episodes in the main feed. You'll still be getting content as a member. So that's thejazzsession.com slash join. We need 10 members between now and the next time I talk to you to get on schedule. I absolutely think we can do it. If you're already a member, please consider asking other people to join you and help me out on social media by spreading the word. And if you're a longtime listener, but you're not yet a member, now's the time. Thanks. did you bring into for the uh for the trio day what did you bring into the studio with you in terms of uh, conceptions of the pieces or anything like that what what did you say to these guys after you had i know you had already talked ahead of time you said by email and that kind of thing but what was there when it was time to play well i had sent them parts and some demo recordings i think i had about seven or eight things that were composed and then also I wanted to just sort of improvise for, for a little while and just sort of see what happens with that. My last couple of recordings um, on Fresh Sound, Spectre, Thieves and Secrets, there's at least one or two pieces from each of those that are, were improvised in the studio. And then I would kind of go back and, and listen to what had happened and what sort of sounds like a piece and maybe kind of chop up a longer improvisation into a couple of different pieces and then sort of listen for themes that we're developing, trying to leave space while I'm playing because I know I'm going to go back and recompose and overdub some elements to it to kind of tie it together so it sounds like, you know, you can't really tell if it's a composition or was it a free improvisation. And that's kind of a really big, important um, musical technique for me. I, I really always have loved that idea of this blurred line between what's composed and what's improvised. Um, when you're listening to something and, uh, and investigating that, um, for better or worse seems to kind of be a, a path that I, that I keep taking. Um, you know, I think it's important to sort of explore that, that world. That's like that mystery part of music. That's really like what I love so much. Like you don't know what it is. There's so many things 
in your life that you know what they are, but there's a, there's still a thing about music I love that I cannot put my finger on, you know, and I don't, <laughs> I don't really want to, I don't want to figure out what it is and know because it might ruin it for me, but I know that it has something to do with not really knowing what's what, you know. Um, yeah, there's kind so of the beautiful aspect of, uh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but just, just to say that no. you, you could put these same three people in a studio a week later or a year later and five years later and all and just say, okay, let's improvise something. And what would happen would be, you could put them in a day later, an hour later, and what would happen would be completely different. Oh, for sure. Which is re- which is sure. also really beautiful, I think. Yeah, I mean that's that, I think that's that's a big aspect of this music that we love so much, and why we keep dedicating our our time and and energy to it in so many different ways. You know, uh, because it gives us this kind of intangible quality that I think we all appreciate. Um. So I knew that that was going to be important to me at least. And um, I knew I wanted to do some of that, but what ended up happening is we really only did two of the, two of the actual kind of song songs that I had, that I had written and brought in. So there's a, a new song, which is the title track of the album called wall of flowers. And then we also did another version of a song on my first album. Um, the song called hospital song, which is on, um, Small Spaces, my first album for Fresh Sound, New Talent. And I've always liked this song. I've always played it a bunch. And just over over the last uh, decade or so, it's just sort of turned into something a little different. And I, I think it's different enough that it was worth capturing sort of that different version um, with these guys. And uh, so we did those two pieces. And then I think, I think maybe we took a break. We did a few takes of each. We took a break. And then we went back. And I didn't want to, I kind of didn't want to keep laboring over pieces in a way at that point, like kind of talking, okay, we're going to do this. And we're going to do this. And we're going to do that. Um, I think I was just like, okay, let's take a break and maybe we can just play and see what happens. I, w- I just wanted to get into that. And, and Chris, you know, producing the album, Chris Schlarb also said, yeah, great idea. Let's try it. And so I think we went in and we did like a 20 minute improv and I think I think afterwards we were all kind of like, whoa, that was amazing. Like you know, the, the feeling in the room was one of like, wow, that was that was really cool. And then I think Schlarb walked in, and I, I kind of just took him aside real quick, and I was like, that was that was cool, right? Like that we should that should be the record. We should just do this, right? And he was like, yeah, go, let's roll, go, go. <laughs> <laughs> so then we we proceeded to improvise for really the rest of the day, I think it was like another three hours or something. Um, so there's a ton of this, a ton of this material. And, um, the other couple of pieces that the group pieces on the record are, are from that, that part of the day. Um, and we got into a lot of different types of places and the idea of, I think maybe, maybe I said something like, you know, let's, let's see if we can kind of make these sound like compositions. So it's not just sort of like, as you'll hear, it's not just sort of like noise free improv energy kind of stuff, which is, which is totally great. But I wanted there to be different shapes, different grooves, different kinds of things that could feel like we were writing the pieces on the spot together. That was kind of what I really wanted to get into. And so there's tons of this material. So the, the pieces from the album come from that, you know, they were specific parts 
um, some of these specific parts that felt like pieces, and I just sort of chopped those up, and then I kind of listened a lot and composed some new material and kind of to help tie it together as, as more of a piece. Um, and there's actually still a bunch more of that um, from what's on the album, but, but that's sort of the story behind probably about half the record comes from that situation. Uh, and I was so happy to know that, um, to know that, you know, my instincts were not off base, you know, not really having heard the two of those guys play in a situation like this, make this kind of music, but still feel like I knew it was going to work. Um, you know, not that I'm, I'm going like, Oh, I was right. See everybody, <laughs> but more like, um, it gives me confidence in the instincts of being able to tell that good musicians always sort of have some of these same qualities, you know, the openness, the ability to listen and react, the ability to try new things. Um, I feel like that's kind of a universal set of skills that really truly great musicians have. Yeah. I would say the presence of those qualities though, is not a guarantee of success because we've all heard uh, all-star bands, you know, at, at festivals or whatever, where individually you look at the names and you think, well, that whatever happens is going to be amazing. And it's totally not amazing uh, because there there is something, I think it's it's a challenge to catch people who are not just open to the music, but I think willing to submit themselves to it. Um, that, like that to me is kind of a magical quality. People who are just willing to say, I don't have to be I don't have to be this particular person or persona now. I'm just going to let the music dictate what happens with my playing. And that, that to me is well, kind of special. Yeah, but that's kind of what I mean. I, maybe I left that, I left out those words, but, but yeah, I think it is a really, um, it's a quality that's not easily found. But I think when I aspire for myself, when I'm thinking I, you know, I want to aspire to be the, the greatest sort of musician artist that I can be, that I can give in this life, that's a quality that I want to achieve. And I don't, you know, I don't think I have it, but I think the truly great musicians I hear always have it. And I, you know, I agree with you. I think a lot of all-star bands, they don't work. And I think maybe it's because these really sort of elusive qualities of greatness don't exist in as many people as we might think that they do. <laughs> yeah, I think that's very fair to say. Um, given... you know, it's not to say that other things don't sound good, but there's, there's these really, there's these elusive qualities that people don't think about a lot, being able to submit yourself to the music in the moment, regard, irregardless of <laughs> ego or whatever. You know, I think that has to be present in, in every situation. You know, and of course, there's good days and bad days, but that's always sort of the trajectory I want to be on. Thank mm -hmm. you. 
given everything you've said about the record and who plays on it and so on and so forth, um, and it's, you know, it's, it's free nature, uh, I don't think anyone will be surprised to learn that there's also a cover of a song popularized by Bobby Vinton on this album, which is exactly oh, yeah. what you the, would expect. Yes. Uh, yes. I mean, I think it goes without saying, but we'll talk about it anyway. Um, but actually, it's, uh, I think it's a really beautiful, it's, first of all, it's an amazing cover of the song Blue Velvet, just on its own. Then on another layer, it's really cool that it happens in the context of everything that's around it, and it actually happens twice. It's cool that it happens in the context of what's around it, um, uh, because I just, I, free albums don't need a song that you can recognize to make the free albums worth doing. But I think when you get a moment where you can, where you can grab onto a melody you've heard a million times, although I'm aging myself, anybody 30 and under, uh, well, I'd probably never have heard this before. But anyway, when you can grab onto a melody, when I can at least, um, I think it kind of accents what else is happening around it. And then there's a thing about the way you play it in the solo version and I mean this next thing I'm going to say in the best possible way. I was thinking about it the last time I was listening to this record in the car. I kind of, I feel like this is, it sounds like a very skilled musician who had just discovered a guitar for the first time is playing the solo version of this. And what I mean by that is it is not full of tropes and licks and anything. It's just like, okay, I know this melody and I'm going to like get to the absolute heart of it. And I'm gonna just find my way around this instrument while I pull the melody out of it. It just—it's—it's it's so beautiful. I just find it really arresting, and and I don't find your approach to it like an approach I've heard by very many people before. So all of this is supposed to be a compliment, not to say that it sounds like you never played the guitar before, but it sounds like a very fresh approach to playing the guitar. I guess is what maybe a nicer, a better way to say what I'm trying to say. Anyway, I love it. Man, I honestly I think that's probably like the greatest compliment I've ever received. Um, I love that idea, like playing it, but you don't sound like you've played it and maybe you don't even sound like you're really adept at the instrument. I know what you're saying, <laughs> you know, and I think that's really awesome. I feel like I try to get to that all the time. You know, I mean, I've been playing the guitar for like, geez, 25, 26, 27 years now, something like that. Um, and I can get around it. Okay but there's something really nice about not feeling like it's on autopilot when you listen to somebody, somebody that's still, there's still some of that struggle, you know, that, that un, the unknown is still in play. Um, but yeah, there's, there's two versions. So there's a solo version and then there's a, a duo version where it's just me and Keltner, but the solo version that you're talking about, I think the other side of that coin is that I'm playing a guitar that's, that's not my own. And, and actually the guitar is, is kind of difficult to play. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, which is why I kind of, the other reason I wanted to use that, because I thought it might add to that element, besides being a great sound, um, a, another really good friend of mine in Southern California, Alan Glass, uh, loans me this instrument sometimes. It's an old, uh, I think it's an early 30s National Duolian resonator guitar, um, dobro kind of thing. And I love that sound. That's a really, another really kind of this ghostly acoustic metallic guitar sound. Um, I really love that. And you usually hear it in situations like acoustic blues music, et cetera. Um, but I love the sound of that instrument and I wanted it to contribute to this album. So he was gracious enough to let me use it. And, um, 
and yeah, it's you know, it's a good it's a good one. It sounds good. The neck is cool, but the action's a little high. Um, the scale is a little shorter than I'm used to. So just guitar wise, it it is a little uncomfortable for me. Um, but that's also part of what I like about it. Yeah. How did you decide? Like, how did you even? How did Blue Velvet end up on this record? Oh well, I have a I have a kind of long term love affair with like the old Torch songs of the forties, fifties, and sixties. Um, you know, anything that's kind of seems a little overly sappy, but also has like a very dark turn to the <laughs> to yeah. it lyrically or musically. In fact, I love that music so much that the only sort of cover band I really have is one that that only does um, these these really slow, depressing, uh, anti-love torch songs. You know, we do some Roy Orbison tunes, um, you know, Blue Velvet. We do uh, um, Lonesome Town, the old Ricky Nelson tune. So just these sort of slow, so sad I can't take it <laughs> kind this of really. Jim uh, Jarmusch film soundtrack kind of yeah right kind of music, exactly yeah, right, yeah. the whole history of i mean the movie blue velvet alone like right. the david lynch movie personifies the, the the sound of that song so i always love that music and i you know i'm aware of the song and i we play it sometimes i'd play it in the trio with with mince and and jerome but um i wanted to just sort of have another side of the coin on that album for one thing you know that like there's a couple of tunes on there that have a very kind of instrumental pop kind of avant rock sort of thing is there's these pieces that are coming from a free imp- improvised session, but have been sort of um, patchworked back into sort of recomposed pieces. And then I just wanted to have another side of things. So I figured, well, I'll just bring this tune along. If we have more time, maybe we'll try it. And we tried it. Um, oh, and I think not long before that, I decided on that tune because I had heard a Lana Del Rey version of that tune. Okay. And I was like, man, I can do it better than this. So I brought that up. (laughs) (laughs) The gauntlet was thrown and you answered. I like it. That's awesome. So, Mike, are there opportunities for people to to, uh, see this music in front of their faces? Are you going on tour with this album? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, actually, um, amazingly, we are going on tour for this. Uh, We're going to be playing a number of shows across the U.S. um, starting March 21st and going until March 30th so we're gonna have we're gonna play our first show in long beach california and then we play bay area in oakland we play portland we play seattle minneapolis chicago northampton massachusetts philadelphia uh beacon new york and new york city um and this is in a stretch of 10 days from the 21st to the 30th all the show uh venue details ticket details are up on my website my Facebook page. I think Watt's posting them as well. Uh, if you follow him on any of that stuff and we'll have vinyl editions, um, available. The band will be me, Mike Watt. And we are super honored and pleased to have, uh, Stephen Hodges joining us on drums. Um, Jim doesn't really travel anymore. And I was kind of thinking, well, what are we going to do? And to me, the obvious choice was to ask Stephen Hodges, um, who currently is is probably uh, most known for being the drummer with Mavis Staples for the last many years. Uh, but he's also on a couple of great, amazing Tom Waits records, Swordfish Trombones, a few other ones. Um, 
he's the drummer for uh, some of the, the Twin Peaks music with David Lynch. Um, he's act- if you if you're a twi- if you're a Twin Peaks David Lynch fan, since we already talked a little bit about Blue Velvet, um, if you watch the Twin Peaks Fire Walk with Me movie, there's a scene um, where they're you know it's taking place in a club and there's sort of a, a really grimy raw sounding blues band playing in the background. That's Stephen Hodges on drums, for instance. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, but more more importantly to me, he's the drummer on Watts' first uh, punk rock opera, Contemplating the Engine Room. This album was a huge, another really big touchstone album for me. I got it in college, and it like blew my mind about like how personal music could really be made and how it could be made sort of free from a lot of genre constraints and had a lot to do with, with you know, my my approach and how I think about and how I approach music now. Um, that album, if you haven't heard that album, that's a definitely must hear. That's Mike Watt, Mike Watt's album, Contemplating the Interim. Stephen Hodges is on drums and Nels Klein is on guitar. Um, and so I'm so, so totally like jazz to be able to play with Watt and Hodges. And we'd been talking about that. And in fact, Watt suggested, well, maybe we should do a couple of, pieces from that album as well. So if you come to these shows, you'll hear Wall of Flowers music, and you will also hear uh, a good sampling of um, pieces from Contemplating the Engine Room uh, as well. So I'm beyond psyched to um, be able to do this. Wow, that is and awesome. So thank, thankful for everybody involved. It's really going to be totally awesome. Well, I'm going to work hard to get myself to one of those because that sounds uh, that sounds pretty fabulous. Uh, my guest on this show has been guitarist Mike Baguetta. The album, which comes out uh, today, if you're listening to this in real time, it's March 15, 2019, is called Wall of Flowers, and it features Mike with drummer Jim Keltner and bassist Mike Watt. Uh, Mike, it's great to have you back on the show. I wish you all the best, and uh, it's, it's just a really great album. Congratulations on a, a really fabulous project. Thank you so much. that's our show thanks to mike baguetta for being my guest thanks to the respect sextet for the theme music they're online at respectsextet.com. dave rabel designed the logo you can find the show on social media facebook.com slash the jazz session instagram.com slash the jazz session twitter at jazz sesh j-a-z-z-s-e-s-h you can find me on twitter and instagram at jason d crane i have a new account at which you can see me injure myself regularly at your dad's bmx on instagram Please do rate and review the show in iTunes. It really does make a difference. Go to thejazzsession.com slash join to become a member and help me reach my goal of 200 members by the end of the year. New episodes come out on the 1st and the 15th on April 1st, 2019. Bassist and composer, Mappa Elliott. Speaking of Mappa Elliott, uh, I will just tell you that he allowed me to use a track from his new album as the soundtrack of a BMX video I made that is on instagram right now at your dad's bmx so head over there check out a a sneak preview from mappa's new record and watch me fall over and then come back next time for another conversation about jazz on the jazz session (laughs) 
Thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.